to wish everyone a very pleasant good morning. Thank you for coming and joining us here in this congregation as we have set aside this time upon this first day of the week to assemble together to offer our worship and our praise to our great God and Father in heaven. If you were here at the nine o'clock hour this morning, we, uh, our brother Gavin looked at the book of Haggai, and that's where we are going to be in this hour again this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, you can go ahead and open once again to that little book. If you're like me, you may have to uh, run through the song that you uh, learned as a child uh, with all the books of the Old Testament. It is a book that we don't usually spend a lot of time in. Uh, but as hopefully you have seen this morning, if you were here a couple of hours ago, uh, it is a rich book. And what we're wanting to do, as our brother Gavin mentioned at that particular hour, uh, for those who were not here with us then, is to just take some time every two or three months to look at one of the minor prophets. It is a section of uh, the scriptures that uh, we don't usually spend a lot of time on. I don't know that I have heard a lot of sermons from the minor prophets or sat in a whole lot of Bible classes or had a whole lot of discussions about this portion of God's Word, uh, but it certainly is God's Word and it is valuable and it has uh, something that is of relevance and importance to us today. And so what we're, Gavin and I are wanting to do in this kind of mini-series throughout the year, and uh, we'll see how it goes this year. And we may run this even into next year, but to just look at the minor prophets to get a good understanding, a good overview of who they were, these men, what little or much we may know about these men that God used to be his spokesman a long time ago, to think more about kind of an overall message of each of these minor prophets and then to make some applications. And so our brother has already spoken to us today given us some background information to put this particular prophet Haggai into the right setting in the Old Testament and to say some things to us uh, about the book, to read the book itself. And in this session, I'm hoping to really build upon some things that he has already mentioned to us and to kind of flesh those ideas out a little bit and to make the sermon in this hour very applicable to our lives. Because I think it can be the case that when we read through the minor prophets, when we read through uh, books like Ezekiel, some of the major prophets, when we read through the book of Revelation, maybe many of our minds can kind of be lost on all of the pictures and all of the imagery that is uh, portrayed in those kinds of books, and we kind of lose the message, I think. And so I'm wanting you, hopefully all of us, to get the message this morning and to see what we can take away and use in our daily lives to be God's uh, true people. So as we think, as Brother Gavin has already said this morning, as we think about this little book of Haggai, it's only 38 verses long, it is talking to us about God's house. It is talking to us about the house of the Lord. And as we think about God's house this morning, I want us to just make two applications that I think that Haggai the prophet makes here. The application from chapter 1 is really a warning or an admonition as far as I'm concerned. And then the application that we want to pull out from Haggai chapter 2 is a promise that God was making his people then and a promise that he is 
made to us as well. And so as we think about the book of Haggai from that particular perspective, I want us to think first of all about a warning about God's house. And that is this particular phrase that you see up here on the screen, consider your ways. Though everything that God through the prophet Haggai says to us here in this first chapter obviously is important for them and for us, the main message, it seems to me, of this chapter, especially from the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, if you will, is what we have here on the screen, to consider your ways. Notice here in the first chapter, if you were not present at 9 o'clock, we're not going to take the time to read this entire book again, but notice here at verse 5 and verse 7, that here is God, here is God speaking through His messenger, and saying to his people, the remnant, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Why did the remnant need to take this admonition, this warning to heart? Why did they at this particular time need to consider their ways? Well, I believe it is because their attitudes and their actions concerning the house of God and also their attitude and their actions concerning their houses and comparing their own individual dwellings to the house of God, the temple there in Jerusalem, that all of that really was out of whack, <laughs> that all of that was out of line. It was not the way that it should have been. I want us to go back and read just once again these couple of verses that I have here on the screen, beginning at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Drop down to verse 9. As God continues talking to his people, he says, You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Though the remnant thought that the time was not right to rebuild or to restore the house of the Lord, it seems like God, through his prophet, his messenger here, is trying to get them to understand that they did not think twice about working on their own houses. That they were dwelling here in paneled houses, and that would suggest that they had put a lot of time, they had... Uh, uh, um, spent a lot of their money, their resources to make their own houses look nice and for their own dwelling place to be a very comfortable place for them. Not that there was anything necessarily wrong with them dwelling in paneled houses, but in comparison to how God's house was and the shape that it was in at this particular point, I think the prophet through, or God through the prophet is trying to get them to see how there is a disconnect here between their own houses and the house of God. It seems to me that they had even gone so far in their thinking that they were perhaps even using some of the materials that they had once gathered for the temple. And they had been sitting around, as Gavin pointed out to us, for some 15, 16 years. And they perhaps had even used some of those materials to make their houses more comfortable, to make their houses more luxurious. Perhaps it is the case. I don't know that we can say this for sure, but maybe these panel houses could have been some of the cedars from Lebanon, you might remember, that were used originally uh, in this temple that Solomon built. Or maybe 
materials that they had gathered uh, to rebuild the temple as they came back here to Jerusalem. I want you to notice two attitudes of the remnant at this particular point toward the rebuilding, the restoration of God's house. First of all, in verse 2, it seems to be the attitude of complacency, that there's no sense of urgency. Again, verse 2, here is God speaking to his people, and he's saying, you are saying, my people, you are saying that the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Maybe they were thinking, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to that building project at some point in the future. We, we know it is an important work, an important task, and we need to finish that. But there doesn't seem to be this sense of urgency. It's just kind of a, a sense of apathy that is set in among God's people concerning this particular work and project. And then connected to that, what we read from verse 4 just a moment ago, there seems to me that, Jesus, that God is saying to his people that you have a misplaced love, that there are misplaced priorities in your life. It somewhat reminds me, anyway, the words of God here to his people in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 4 of what the Apostle Paul would write later in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he says that as we are living in the last days, as Timothy and those Christians of the first century were living in the last days, and we are as well, that there would be many people in that particular environment that would be lovers of self, they would be lovers of money, they would be lovers of pleasure, they would basically be those people who are loving their own comforts rather than being lovers of God. And this seems to me where the children of Israel were, or the remnant was at this particular point as a whole. Their attitudes had led to a lack of action on God's house. And therefore he was not with them. And he would not be with them if they continued to show these same attitudes. And it wasn't like all of this just happened all of a sudden. If you notice here several verses that we've already read earlier this morning, just notice these verses. Notice some things again that God says to his people at this particular point. Verse 6, he says, You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, and there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Again, drop down to verse 9. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. And when you bring it home, it bl I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I, Jehovah called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. This to me shows without a doubt God is trying to remind his people that he has made attempt after attempt to try to get them to change, to try to get them to see the futility of their efforts to just spend all of their time, all of their resources, all of their God-given gifts and abilities making their houses nice and comfortable, while here again God's house has been neglected for some time. That is, it seems to me, the specific message in thinking about considering your ways here to the people that Haggai is addressing. But what's the takeaway for us today, brothers and sisters? What about for each of us? Could it be the case that we have perhaps neglected God's, quote, house, 
We have neglected the work that God has given us to do in our time. That we have neglected God's people, as we'll speak about God's house in those terms a little bit more when we think about the promise of God in this book. Could it be that we have neglected all of those things that are good things, that things that God has given to us in preference of our own house? I don't mean that necessarily your physical structure, the physical structure that you and your family live in is plated with gold, has cedar timbers and all of those things that were true of the first temple that Solomon built. But I'm using that word house to just think about our lives. Could it be that our own house is the priority in our life, that our career is the priority? And so anything that advances our career, that's what we're going to do. Could it be that our possessions and the Heaping up of our own possessions is what takes priority in our lives. Could it be that our goals that are building our house, as it were, is what's most important for us? Could it even be our family? All of those things that I just mentioned are blessings. They are gifts from God. They're not wrong in and of themselves. God has commanded us as human beings to work. God has given us blessings to enjoy. The book of Ecclesiastes talks to us about that in several places. God has certainly given us family as a blessing to us. But could it be that all of those things that are in, quote, our house have taken priority to the point that we have neglected working in God's house? Have we perhaps started to build on God's house just like the early, uh, the, the remnant that had come back 16 years earlier had done, but maybe we have become sidetracked with building our own house. Maybe we have faced some opposition as we have tried to build on God's house as they did, and that has discouraged us, and we become afraid in being part, a part of that rebuilding effort that we have just let it lie. And we have become so distracted with our building our own house. I think Jesus has several things to say actually about that, but just a couple of things that we're going to look at this morning. In the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus tells that very early parable of the parable of the sower, in Luke chapter 8, sometimes we think about the parable of the sower and we think about it in terms of like us as being sowers of the Word of God and out here working in the field that is the world. And these are different kinds of people, different kinds of hearts, different kinds of receptions that we're going to get as we try to preach and teach the Word. And I think there is an application there. But I think even more than that, perhaps Jesus was telling this parable to those who had already made the decision to come and follow Him. And there is something for those of us who are in God's house, who are a part of God's house, to learn from this. Notice something that Jesus said at verse 14 as He is explaining the parable to His disciples. He said there about the thorny soil that the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. The, the thorny soil is very similar, I think, at least in my mind, to the remnant that we are discussing today of Haggai's day, that they and we as well, that we can allow life to choke us to the point that we bring no fruit to maturity. That is the point being made here to work on God's house, that we can become people who just start some project. We can become people who begin to build on God's house and begin to 
make it the glorious house that it is, but we don't really see that work to fruition. We don't finish what we start. And Jesus says here, even for those who have made the decision to come and follow him, that it can be the case in our own lives that the thorns of life, the worries, the riches, the pleasures, good things and bad things of life can begin to choke us spiritually so that the word, the seed, does not produce fruit. It does not come to maturity. And we walk away from the work that we have been involved in, that God has given us to do. Jesus spoke of it in these terms just a few chapters later in this same gospel in Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 27, when he said to us there, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, All who observe it began to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Being a disciple of Christ, being a worker in God's house in terms that we are thinking of this morning, is not so much about us starting that process. Certainly we have to get that process started. But once we have made the decision that we're going to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, that we are going to be a worker in the house of God, then we've got to see that through to the end. It is about finishing. And I believe Jesus maybe here in Luke chapter 14 was trying to make that point to his audience and to us that there are going to be some costs involved. There are going to be some demands that you will have to meet if you're going to be a true disciple of mine. And you need to think about those costs at the beginning. You need to consider those costs. We may not know exactly how much it will cost us to follow Jesus when we come out of the waters of baptism. But Jesus is saying when we start to build, we need to make sure that we are intentional about finishing that particular work. Just in very practical terms, I think that this warning that God is giving to his people and to us today to consider our ways We need to just sit down and think about some things, to think about where our priorities are really in our life. Is our priority on being involved in the work that God has given us to do in building God's house, or is it more the priority of building our own house? And if you are a person who budgets the money that comes into your household every day uh, or every every month, uh, to think about where does that money go? What do I spend my money on? Hopefully, as Christians, we're not out here spending it on immoral, illegal things. But what is the priority with the resources that God has given to me or to us? I don't know about you. We, for years, have had a budget and just a very simple Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. And the first category in that budget is our giving and not just what we put in the plate as it comes around on a Sunday morning, but our giving to the Lord's work in other areas of our life. And we have made that a priority in our marriage that whatever else we do with the blessings that God has given to us, we're first and foremost going to make sure that we are involved in working on God's house. And I think all of us need to think about that, but not just with our money, but with our time, With our resources, our time maybe even says more about who we are and what we place priorities on than our money. And in this country, as we've already been reminded this morning, I I think we have the blessing certainly of 
financial resources, but we also, many of us have the blessing of just time that maybe generations that have gone before us didn't have. What are we doing with that time? Are we using it to build our house? Are we using it to build God's house? If we have started but not finished in our work for God or the demands of our own house are choking us to spiritual death, here is the admonition, the warning from God that we need to consider our ways. And we need to get to work on his house. But it's not all bad news here in this little book of Haggai because we come especially to the second chapter and yes, the prophet still talks about God through him still talks about there were ways in which God was trying to get these people to come to reality and to see their need to get back to work on his house and to be his chosen people. But we also see a promise here that God gives to his people about his house, that that his house is going to be glorious. We're not going to take the time this morning to go through all the ins and outs of what is said to us in chapter 2. I would just tell you, and if you disagree with this, that's fine. We can discuss it later. But, but I believe the, the imagery, the words that, is, that uh, God through Haggai is using here in chapter 2 about his house is going to be glorious and the latter house is going to be even more glorious than the former house. I'm convinced that the house that God would, said would be greater in glory than his former house is really God's house today. It, it is the house that God has built and is continuing to build. Again, continuing to build. Again, if you look at verse 7, he says, Through Haggai that I'm going to shake all the nations and they will come with all the wealth of all the nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Is this some kind of physical structure that would be built even as these uh, the remnant has come back here to Jerusalem to be involved in a physical rebuilding process? They're going to rebuild this structure that is called the temple. But is God's house today some kind of physical structure? I think most of us hopefully have come to the realization that it is not. But could it be that maybe too many of us are thinking in terms of physical facilities when we think about God's house and glory in beautiful buildings that men may build, just as even some of Christ's disciples did when they saw the temple in his day in Mark chapter 13. And Jesus begins to talk to them about some coming things, about judgment that would come upon them, about the destruction of that physical building, the temple, about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, you can look at these beautiful buildings, but that really wasn't the point. They could become so enamored with the physical structure of the temple in Jerusalem itself that they were missing the more glorious picture of God's house. So what is God's house today? Who, rather, is God's house today? And I believe it's God's people. It is the church of which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is head. I want you to think about just that kind of building, that house terminology as we look at a few passages from the New Testament this morning. First of all, from the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you might remember this passage as Paul was was really wanting to uh, ride and to these brethren to discuss 
uh, spiritual matters and hoping that they would be spiritually mature enough to understand what he was saying, but they had not matured to that point yet. Some of them, as you know from chapter 1, uh, seem to be more enamored with the, uh, the uh, preachers, <laughs> gospel preachers, rather than being enamored with the gospel and with the author of the gospel, Jesus Christ himself. And so Paul talks about himself and Apollos here in this chapter that they're just servants. They, they are really conduits, channels through which the message would come and did come to them. That Paul planted Apollos waters, but it was God that was giving the increase or causing the growth. But notice what he says about himself and what he says about these brethren here at Corinth. When we come to verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 3, he says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field God's building. He's using a, an agricultural term there about God's field, but also using this terminology that we're thinking of today about being God's building. Over in chapter 16, as he continues in that discussion, he says at verse 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. The passage that I also have here on the screen, we won't take the time to read, but over in chapter 6, I think in that particular text, he is thinking more about us individually and, and thinking about our physical body that, uh, in, in which our spirit or our soul is housed and reminding those Christians that have come out of the world of being fornicators and homosexuals and adulterers and idolaters and all of those kind of things that they once were, reminding them that their body, their physical body is holy that their physical body is sacred, that it is to be set apart for God's purpose, to do God's work, and that they have been bought with a price, therefore they are to glorify God in their body. And so Christ's church, whether it is viewed uh, in the aggregate or as a whole, as I think it is more in chapter 3 and saying to that church at Corinth, that you as a whole collective, that you are the temple of God, or whether we think about that as individuals comprising the whole as he speaks more on an individual level here in chapter 6, that we, God's people, are the temple of God today. That we are the house of the Lord today. And it is a glorious house. It is a glorious house because His presence, His Spirit is in us and with us. Just as it has always been for those who are His true people. Sometimes we, as we look at God's house, as we look at God's people, <laughs> sometimes we may see people who maybe in our mind aren't really that glorious. <laughs> sometimes we think of, you know, all this collection of people, the body of the saved that are in Jesus Christ, that are in his church, that we have our struggles, we have our faults, we have our shortcomings, just like people in the world do, and certainly that is true. But I want you to think about this passage and the next two that we're going to look at from the book of Ephesians. Think about it from God's view. Because it seems to me that the Apostle Paul is trying to remind these brethren and us that from God's view, his house is wonderful. His house is beautiful. His house is a glorious house. So turn there to Ephesians chapter 2 and the passage that our brother Richard read just a few moments ago. We'll not take the time again to read this, the entirety of this passage, but let's begin there at verse 19 in Ephesians 2. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That the house of the Lord, the house of God, as it were, is still being built today. Every time a person hears the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is salvation that God has offered us now through His Son, Jesus Christ, every time someone hears that good news message and they respond in faith and they respond in obedience to the gospel message and they are saved from their sins, the Lord adds them to His house. And it is a glorious house. Paul speaking in this text, specifically here in Ephesians chapter 2, about Jews and Gentiles, those who have been enemies for some time before he writes this in the first century. But now they are brought together. They are brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is their peace as he is our peace. And both groups can now be one. That is a glorious thing. And it is glorious because, as Paul states here in this text, Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. It is a glorious house because it contains the redeemed of all the ages. It contains saved men and women, saved people who are young and old, saved people who are rich and poor, saved people who are educated and uneducated, saved people who are American citizens and Chinese citizens and citizens of countries in Africa and all throughout the world that the gospel is gone. And you and I just don't have the ability as, as individual people or even as a collective to see all of that in its entirety. But I am very confident that God does. And he sees his whole house. And it is very much a glorious house because it is his people. We have this glorious picture painted for us in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians and we'll not take the time to read all of this either. But notice here, just beginning at verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Listen to verse 27. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This, again, I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters and friends, this is the view that God has of His church. This is the view that Christ, our head, has of His church, that the house of the Lord today is Christ's glorious church. He is her loving, cleansing, sanctifying, sacrificing, nourishing head, and we are His submissive, holy, blameless body. It is a glorious house. And God has filled this house with His glory. And that's why I believe we have the warning or the admonition in chapter 1 because of the promise that is said in chapter 2. Because God's house is a glorious, wonderful, beautiful house. Therefore, we need to consider our ways. Where, where, what is the focus of our life? Where is our life centered? Is it on building our own house or is it being involved in the work of building God's house? The book of Haggai is not a scary book. <laughs> None of the minor prophets are scary books. There may be some difficult things for us to understand. I will, I will tell you that right off the bat. But I believe the overall message of these books we can understand 
Haggai's message pertaining to God's house contained both, as we've spoken of this morning, a warning and a promise for Israel of old. And this book contains the same for us today, the spiritual Israel of God. Though this man known as Haggai spoke about 2,500 years ago, I'm suggesting to you this morning that his message is still relevant for us today. There is still value. There is still something that we can take from this message and apply to our lives that will change us and shape us into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So here is what all of us need to do, myself included. We need to take his message to heart. Not just say that those were two good sermons today, if you think they were good, and walk away and get back to the business of building your own house every day. But let's all take his message to heart by being diligent to do our part in building God's glorious house. Yesterday, there were about maybe 30 or 40 of us of this congregation that met here at the church building to uh, do some maintenance work inside and out. And we were all uh, busy doing a whole variety of things. Kind of reminded me of uh, the times of Nehemiah with building the wall in Nehemiah 3 that every person kind of seemed to have his own section that he, was, he or she was working on. And we got a lot done. I, I spent most of my time outside, uh, but I know there was a lot of work that was, that was done here inside. And there was just a, a good spirit as far as I could see, of everyone wanting to chip in. And some of us, when we got finished with one task, walking around saying, what else can I do to help out? And that ought to be true of us as we think about the spiritual house of God, the church of Christ, the people that belong to him. We need to have that same attitude. We need to be involved. We need to have as much energy and fervor about us. Some of us, I think, maybe are a little bit sore after working here for several hours yesterday. But we ought to be the same spiritually, brothers and sisters. Our spiritual muscles ought to be worn out in this business of building God's house. What about you this morning? Are you a part of God's house? Are you a part of God's family? You can be because of what God has, the provisions that he has made for us in his son, Jesus Christ. If you need to become a part of his house this morning, we would invite you to do that very thing right now. And if you are in God's house and maybe you have slacked off somewhat in your part in building his house, to repent of that and to get back to this most important building process. However, we can be of help to you this morning. If you need to respond to the invitation of Christ, we encourage you to do that now as we stand and as we sing.